14. Glass. The base of the stone lay about 91 to inches beneath the level of the surrounding ground, and its upper surface 19 inches above the ground. A hole was also dug close to a second huge stone, which in falling had broken into two pieces, and this must have happened long ago. Judging from the weathered aspect of the fractured ends, the base was buried to a depth of 10 inches, as was ascertained by driving an iron skewer horizontally into the ground beneath it, the vegetable mold forming the turf-covered sloping board around the stone, on which many castings had recently been ejected, was 10 inches in thickness, and most of this mold must have been brought up by worms from beneath its base, at a distance of 8 yards from the stone. The mold was only 51 to inches in thickness with a piece of tobacco pipe at a depth of 4 inches, and this rested on broken flint and chalk which could not have easily yielded to the pressure or weight of the stone. A straight rod was fixed horizontally by the aid of a spirit level across the third fallen stone, which was 7 feet 9 inches long, and the contour of the projecting parts and of the adjoining ground, which was not quite level, was thus ascertained as shown in the accompanying diagram figure 3 on a scale of 1 to inch to a foot. The turf-covered border sloped up to the stone on one side to a height of 4 inches, and on the opposite side to only 21 to inches above the general level. A hole was dug on the eastern side, and the base of the stone was here found to lie at a depth of 4 inches beneath the general level of the ground, and of 8 inches beneath the top of the sloping turf-covered border. Illustration, figure 3 section through one of the fallen druidical stones at Stonehenge, showing how much it had sunk into the ground. Sufficient evidence has now been given showing that small objects left on the surface of the land where worms abound soon get buried, and that large stones sink slowly downwards through the same means. Every step of the process could be followed, from the accidental deposition of a single casting on a small object lying loose on the surface, to its being entangled amidst the mad roots of the turf and lastly to its being embedded in the mold at various depths beneath the surface, when the same field was re-examined after the interval of a few years. Such objects were found at a greater depth than before. The straightness and regularity of the lines formed by the embedded objects, and their parallelism with the surface of the land, are the most striking features of the case, for this parallelism shows how equably the worms must have worked, the result being, partly the effect of the washing down of the fresh castings by rain. The specific gravity of the objects does not affect their rate of sinking, as could be seen by porous cinders, burnt marl, chalk and quartz pebbles, having all sunk to the same depth within the same time. Considering the nature of the substratum, which at Leaf Hill Place was sandy soil including many bits of rock, and at Stonehenge, chalk rubble with broken flints, considering, also, the presence of the turf-covered sloping border of mold round the great fragments of stone at both these places. Their sinking does not appear to have been sensibly aided by their weight, though this was considerable, on the number of worms which live within a given space. We will now show, first, what a vast number of worms live and seen by us beneath our feet, and, secondly, the actual weight of the earth which they bring up to the surface within a given space and within a given time. Henson, who has published so full and interesting an account of the habits of worms, calculates, from the number which he found in a measured space, that there must exist 133.000 living worms in a hectare of land, or 53.767 in an acre. This latter number of worms would weigh 356 pounds, taking Hansen's standard of the weight of a single worm, namely, 1 gram. It should, however, be noted that this calculation is founded on the numbers found in a garden, 
and Hansen believes that worms are here twice as numerous as in cornfields, the above result, astonishing Noipi, seems to me credible, judging from the number of worms which I have sometimes seen, and from the number daily destroyed by birds without the species being exterminated, some barrels of bad ale were left on Mr. Miller's land, in the hope of making vinegar, but the vinegar proved bad, and the barrels were upset. It should be premised that acetic acid is so deadly a poison to a worms that Perrier found that a glass rod dipped into this acid and then into a considerable body of water in which worms were immersed, invariably killed them quickly. On the morning after the barrels had been upset, the heaps of worms which lay dead on the ground were so amazing, that if Mr. Miller had not seen them, he could not have thought it possible for such numbers to have existed in the space. As further evidence of the large number of worms which live in the ground Hansen states that he found in a garden 64 open burrows in a space of 141 2 square feet, that island 9 and 2 square feet, but the burrows are sometimes much more numerous, for when digging in a grass field near Mayor Hall, I found a cake of dry earth, as large as my two open hands, which was penetrated by seven burrows, as large as goose quills, copyright by W.S. Blatchley, 1899. I the rainbow darter, little fishy in the brook, not the one daddy caught with a hook, but another, too small for the hook, too small for the frying pan, too small for aught else but beauty, and gracefulness of form, and yet not the young of a larger fish, but full grown of himself, in every brook in the state he may be found, yea, even in the rill, no more than a foot in width, which leads away from the old spring house on the hillside, you will not find him swimming about like the minnows in the still, deep water of the stream, but where the clear, cold water is rushing rapidly over the stones of a ripple he makes his home, there he rests quietly on the bottom, waiting patiently for his food, the larvae or young of gnats, mosquitoes, and other such insects, to float by, if you attempt to catch him, or your shadow suddenly frightens him, with a sweep of his broad pectoral or breast fins, he moves quicker than a flash a few feet farther up the stream, and then as suddenly comes to a stop, and resumes his quiet, thoughtful, attitude, if you persist in your attempt to capture him, he will dart under a small stone or submerged leaf, where, like the foolish ostrich which when pursued hides her head under her wing, no longer seeing you, he thinks himself secure, on account of the shape of his body, as well as on account of his rapid movements, he has received the surname, Darter, belonging to the group which bears this surname, there are, in the eastern half of the United States, about 47 species or kinds, the largest of which, when full-grown, measures only about 6 inches in length, while the smallest species never reaches a length of more than an inch and a half. They all had the same habits, and at least 29 kinds of them are found in Indiana, but the one of which I am writing is much the more common. He is from 2 to 2 and a half inches in length, and, like the other members of his family, has two fins on his back, dorsal, since they are called by naturalists, the front one of which contains ten short spines, during eight months of the year, the males and females dress alike in a suit of brownish olive which is striped on the sides with ten or twelve narrow, black cross bars, and more or less blotched on the back with darker spots, but on the first warm days of spring, when the breezes blow up from the gulf, awakening the gypsy in our blood, the little male fish feels, too, their influence and in him there arises an irresistible desire to, according go, like most other beings of his sex, he thinks his everyday suit too plain for the important business before him, it will, in his opinion, ne'er catch the eye of his lady love, 
so he dons one of gaudy colors and from it takes his name, the rainbow darter, for in it he is best known, as it not only attracts the attention of his chosen one, but often also that of the wandering naturalist who happens along the stream. The blackish bars of other seasons are changed to indigo blue, while the space between them assumes a hue of the brightest orange. The fins are broadly etched with blue and have the bases orange, or orange and scarlet, while the cheeks assume the blue and the breast becomes an orange. Clad in a suit he ventures forth on his mission, and if successful, as he almost always island the two construct a nest of tiny stones in which the eggs of the mother fish are laid and watched over with jealous care by both parents until in time there issue forth sons destined someday to wear a coat of many colors, and darters to be attracted by those coats, as was their mother by the one their father wore, although so abundant and so brilliant in the springtime, the rainbow darter is known to few but naturalists. The fishes in which the average country boy is interested are the larger ones such as the goggle eye, the sucker, chub, and sunfish those which, when caught, will fill up the string and tickle the palate. But there are, let us hope, among our farmers' sons and daughters, some who are learning to take an interest in the objects of nature which are beautiful, as well as in those which are full. To them I will say, if you wish to see something really pretty, make a seine from an old coffee sack or a piece of mosquito netting and any day in spring drag two or three ripples of the branch which flows through the woods pasture, and ten chances to one you will get some rainbows, by placing them in a fruit jar three-fourths full of clear, cold water, and renewing the water every few hours. They can be kept for several days, but they cannot bear the confinement long, accustomed as they are to the free-running stream from which they were taken, by taking the rainbow as the type of the darter and studying closely its habits, both in captivity and in the streams. Much can be learned about a group which, in the words of Dr. S.A. Forbes, are the mountaineers among fishes, forced from the populous and fertile valleys of the river beds and lake bottoms. They have taken refuge from their enemies in the rocky highlands where the free waters play in ceaseless torrents, and there they have rested from stubborn nature a meager living. Although diminished in size by their continual struggle with the elements, they have developed an activity and hardihood a vigor of life and a glow of high color almost unknown among the easier livers of the lower lands, I.I., the long-eared sunfish, among the most brightly colored of all the freshwater members of the finny tribe is the long-eared sunfish, when full-grown its length is about 8 inches and the breadth one half as much, the color is then a brilliant blue and orange, the former predominating above, the orange on the sides in spots, the blue in wavy, vertical streaks, the cheeks are orange with bright blue stripes, the fins with the membranes orange, and the rays blue, extending back from the hind margin of each cheek is a conspicuous blackish membrane termed an ear flap, which in this species is longer than in any other of the sunfish family, whence the specific name, megalodes, from two Greek words meaning, great, and, ear, within the placid pools of the brooks and larger streams of the state the sunfish has its favorite haunts, midsummer is the time when its habits can be best observed, on a recent August morn I sat for an hour or longer on the banks of a stream, which flows through a wooded blue grass pasture, and watched the denizens of its waters, a peaceful calm existed, the water being without a ripple and with scarce the semblance of a flow the air without the shadow of a breeze, dragonflies lazily wing their way across the pool, now resting daintily upon a blade of sedge or swamp grass, now dipping the tips of their abdomens beneath the surface of the water while depositing their eggs, the only sounds of nature were the buzz of a bumblebee feeding among the flowers of the brunello at my side, 
and an occasional drawl of a dog day locust from the branches of the sycamore which threw a grateful shade about me. The sunfish hung motionless in the water, their heads towards me, holding their position only by a slow flapping of their dorsal and pectoral fins, their nesting time over, their season's labor ended, it was with them, as with many other beings, a time of languor. These long-eared fishes are the lords and ladies of the respective pools wherein they abide, when they move other smaller fry clear the way, if a worm or gnat, falling upon the surface, tempts them, it is theirs, a leaf falls near them and is seemingly unnoticed to fly, and how quickly their dormant energy is put into motion, with a dart and a gulp the insect is swallowed, and a new stage of waiting expectancy is ushered in, how admirably fitted their form for cleaving the water. They often seem to glide rather than propel themselves through its depths. Again, how swiftly the caudalfin moves when with straight entering motion they dart upon their prey. At times one turns his body sideways, and, with a slow, upward gliding motion, moves toward some object on the surface which is doubtfully good to eat. He even takes it into his mouth and then, not having faith in his power to properly digest it, ejects it with force and turning quickly darts back to the friendly shadow of a boulder beneath whose sides he has, in time of threatened danger, a safe retreat. I throw a grasshopper into the pool, like a flash six of the sunfish are after it, one reaches it a tenth of a second in advance of the others, and with a lightning-like gulp, which disturbs the serenity of the surface of the pool, swallows the picking prey, the energy of the sun's heat and light, stored in grass, transmitted to move muscles in gigantic leaps, will, in a short time, wag a caudalfin and propel the owner through these watery depths. Years are thus doubtless spent by these long-eared sunfish in a dreamy sort of existence, their energies quickened by the vernal season and growing duller on the approach of winter, excepting the times when they are tempted by a wriggling worm on some boy's hook. Theirs is a life exempt from danger, a pinfisher glancing down from his perch on the bent sycamore limay, at times, discern them and lessen their ranks, but, methinks, the chub minnows, with fewer spines in their dorsal fins, are more agreeable to the kingfisher's palate, with all the tints of the rainbow gleaming from their sides they move to and fro, the brilliant rulers of these quiet pools, the king or monarch of those noted was most gorgeously arrayed, in addition to the hues above described, a streak of emerald bordered his dorsal and caudal fins and was bent around the edge of his upper lip a green mustache, as it were. By tolling them with occasional bits of food I drew him and his retinue close into shore. There, for some time they rested, watching eagerly for additional morsels. As I was leaving I plucked from my sleeve and, and, and threw it towards them. A dart, a girdle, a gulp the leader had leaked half his length from the water, and the end was forever gone. The ripples receded and finally disappeared, and the last scene in this tragedy of nature was at an end. Sea slugs and sea fish from a journal of researches. By Charles Darwin, I was much interested, on several occasions, by watching the habits of an octopus, or cuttlefish, although common in the pools of water left by the retiring tide, these animals were not easily caught, by means of their long arms and suckers, they could drag their bodies into very narrow crevices, and when thus fixed, it required great force to remove them, at other times they darted, tail first, with the rapidity of an arrow, from one side of the pool to the other at the same instant discoloring the water with a dark chestnut brown ink. These animals also escape detection by a very extraordinary, chameleon-like power of changing their color. They appear to vary their tints according to the nature of the ground over which they pass, when in deep water. Their general shade was brownish-purple, 
but when placed on the land, or in shallow water, this dark tint changed into one of a yellowish green. The color, examined more carefully, was a French gray, with numerous minute spots of bright yellow, the former of these varied in intensity, the latter entirely disappeared and appeared again by turns. These changes were effected in such a manner, that clouds, varying in tint between a hyacinth red and a chestnut brown, were continually passing over the body, any part, being subjected to a slight shock of galvanism, became almost black, a similar effect, but in a less degree, was produced by scratching the skin with a needle, these clouds, or blushes as they may be called, are said to be produced by the alternate contraction and expansion of minute vesicles containing variously colored fluids, the scuttlefish displayed its chameleon-like power both during the act of swimming and whilst remaining stationary at the bottom, I was much amused by the various arts to escape detection used by one individual, which seemed fully aware that I was watching it, remaining for a time motionless, it would then stealthily advance an inch or two, like a cat after a mouse, sometimes changing its color, it thus proceeded, till having gained a deeper part, it darted away, leaving a dusky train of ink to hide the hole into which it had crawled, while looking for marine animals, with my head about two feet above the rocky shore. I was more than once saluted by a jet of water, accompanied by a slight grating noise. At first I could not think what it was, but afterwards I found out that it was the scuttlefish, which, though concealed in a hole, thus often led me to its discovery, that it possesses the power of ejecting water there is no doubt, and it appeared to me that it could certainly take good aim by directing the tube or siphon on the upper side of its body, from the difficulty which these animals have in carrying their heads. They cannot crawl with ease when placed on the ground. I observed that one which I kept in the cabin was slightly phosphorescent in the dark. The cowfish from travels on the Amazon. By Sir Alfred Russell Wallace. It was a female. About six feet long. And nearly five in circumference in the thickest part. The body is perfectly smooth. And without any projections or inequalities. Changing into a horizontal semicircular flat tail. With no appearance whatever of hind limbs. There is no distinct neck, the head is not very large, and is terminated by a large mouth and fleshy lips, somewhat resembling those of a cow. There are stiff bristles on the lips, and a few distantly scattered hairs over the body. Behind the head are two powerful oval fins, and just beneath them are the breasts, from which, on pressure being applied, flows a stream of beautiful white milk. The ears are minute holes, and the eyes very small. The color is a dusky lead with some large pinkish-white marbled blotches on the belly. The skin is about an inch thick on the back, and a quarter of an inch on the belly. Beneath the skin is a layer of fat of a greater or less thickness, generally about an inch, which is boiled down to make an oil used for light and for cooking. The intestines are very voluminous, the heart about the size of a sheep's, and the lungs about two feet long, and six or seven inches wide, very cellular and spongy, and can be blown out like a bladder. The skull is large and solid, with no front teeth, the vertebrae extend to the very tip of the tail, but show no rudiments of posterior limbs, the forelimbs, on the contrary, are very highly developed, the bones exactly corresponding to those of the human arm, having even the five fingers, with every joint distinct, yet enclosed in a stiff inflexible skin, where not a joint can have any motion, the cowfish feeds on grass at the borders of the rivers and lakes and swims quickly with the tail and paddles, and though the external organs of sight and hearing are so imperfect, these senses are said by the hunters to be remarkably acute, 
and to render necessary all their caution and skill to capture the animals, they bring forth one, or rarely two, young ones, which they clasp in their arms or paddles while giving suck. They are harpooned or caught in a strong net, at the narrow entrance of a lake or stream. Each yields from five to twenty-five gallons of oil. The flesh is very good, being something between beef and pork, and this one furnished us with several meals, and was an agreeable change from our fish diet. By David Starr Jordan, President of Leland Stanford, Junior, University, from the Popular Science Monthly by permission, I only know the humble, bold, haughty, with miseries untold, and the old curse that left thee cold and drove thee ever to the sun on blistering rocks, about whose fame searchest the grass with tongue of flame, making all creatures see thy game, when the whole woods before thee run, ask but when all is said and done to a lie, and trodden, in the sun, the R-E-H-A-R-D-E, old rattler was a snake, of course, and he lives in the King's River Cannon, high up and down deep in the mountains of California, he had a hole behind and below a large, flat granite rock, not far from the river, and he called it his home, for in it he slept all night and all winter, but when the sun came back in the spring and took the frost out of the air and the rocks, then he crawled out to lie until he got warm, the stream was clear and swift in the cannon, the waterfall sang in the side gulch of roaring river, the wind rustled in the long needles of the yellow pines, and the birds called to their mates in the branches, but old Rattler did not care for such things, he was just a snake, you know and his neighbors did not think him a good snake at that, for he was surly and silent, and his big, three-cornered, coffin-shaped head, set on a slim, flat neck, was very ugly to see, but when he opened his mouth he was uglier still, for in his upper jaw he had two long fangs, and each one was filled with deadly poison, his vicious old head was covered with gray and wrinkled scales, and his black, Bead-like eyes snapped when he opened his mouth to find out whether his fangs were both in working order. Old Rattler was pretty stiff when he first came from his hole on the morning of the story. He had lain all night coiled up like a rope among the rocks, and his tail felt very cold, but the glad sun warmed the cockles of his heart, and in an hour or two he became limber, and this made him happy in his snaky fashion. But, being warm, he began to be hungry, for it had been a whole month since he had eaten anything. When the first new moon of August came, his skin loosened everywhere and slipped down over his eyes like a veil, so that he could see nothing about him, and could not hunt for frogs by the river, nor for chipmunks among the trees, but with the new moon of September all this was over, the rusty brown old coat was changed for a new suit of gray and black, and the diamond-shaped checkers all over it were clean and shiny as a set of new clothes out to be, there was a little striped chipmunk running up and down the sugar pine tree over his head pursing his little mouth and throwing himself into pretty attitudes, as though he were the center of an admiring audience, and old Rattler kept a steady eye on him, but he was in no hurry about it all, he must first get the kinks out of his neck, and the cold cramps from his tail, there was an old curse on his family, so the other beasts had heard, that kept him always cold, and his tail was the coldest part of all, so he shook it a little, just to show that it was growing limber, and the bone clappers on the end rustled with a sharp, angry noise, fifteen rattles he had in all fifteen and a button and to have so many showed that he was no common member of his hated family, then he shook his tail again, and more sharply, this was to show all the world that he, old rattler, was wide awake, and whoever stepped on him would better look out, 
Then all the big beasts and little beasts who heard the noise fled away just as fast as ever they could, and to run away was the best thing they could do. For when old Rattler struck one of them with his fangs all was over with him. So there were many in the cannon, beasts and birds and snakes too, who hated old Rattler, but only if you dared face him. And one of these was Glitter Child, whom men call the king of snakes, and in a minute I shall tell you why. And when old Rattler was doing all that I have said, the king snake lay low on a bed of pine needles, behind a bunch of fern, and watched him with keen, sharp eye, the angry buzz of Rattler's tail, which scared the chipmunks and the bullfrogs and all the rest of the beast folk, was music for Glitter Child. He was a snake, too, and snakes understand some things better than any of the rest of us. Glitter Child was slim and wiry in his body, as long as old Rattler himself, but not so large around. His coat was smooth and glossy, not rough and wrinkly like old Rattler's, and his appraised head was small and pretty for a snake. He was the best dressed of all his kind, and he looked his finest as he faced old Rattler. His head was shiny black, his throat and neck as white as milk while all down his body to the end of his tail he was painted with rings, first white, then black, then crimson and every ring was bright as if it had just been freshly polished that very day. So the king snake passed the sheltering fern and came right up to old Rattler. Rattler opened his sleepy eyes, threw himself on guard with a snap and a buzz, and shook his bony clapper savagely. But the king of snakes was not afraid. Every snake has a weak spot somewhere, and that is the place to strike him. If he hadn't a weak spot no one else could live about him. And then, perhaps he would starve to death at last. If he had not some strong points, where no one could harm him, he couldn't live himself. As the black crest rose, old Rattler's tail grew cold, his head dropped, his mouth closed, he straightened out his coil, and staggered helplessly toward his hole. This was the chance for Glitter Child, with a dash so swift that all the rings on his body red, white, and black melted into one purple flash. He seized old Rattler by his throat. He carried no weapons, to be sure. He had neither fangs nor venom. He won his victories by force and dash, not by mean advantage. He was quick and strong, and his little hook teeth held like the claws of a hawk. Old Rattler closed his mouth because he couldn't help it, and the fangs he could not use were folded back against the roof of his jaw. The king snake leaped forward, wound his body in a love knot around old Rattler's neck, took a half hitch with his tail about the stomach while the rest of his body lay in a curve like the letter S between the two knots. Then all he had to do was to stiffen up his muscles, and old Rattler's backbone was snapped off at the neck. All that remained to Glitter Child was to swallow his enemy. First he rubbed his lips all over the body, from the head to the tail, till it was slippery with slime. Then he opened his mouth very wide, with a huge snaky yawn, and face to face he began on old Rattler. The ugly head was hard to manage. After much straining, he clasped his jaws around it, and the venom trickled down his throat like some fiery sauce. Slowly head and neck and body disappeared, and the tail wriggled despairingly, for the tail of the snake folk cannot die till sundown. And when it went at last the fifteen rattles and the button were keeping up an angry buzz, and all night long the king of snakes, twice as big as he ought to be, lay gorged and motionless upon old rattler's rock. And in the morning the little chipmunk ran out on a limb above him pursed up his lips, and made all kinds of faces, as much as to say, I did all this, and the whole world was watching while I did it, by David Starr Jordan, President of Leland Stanford, Junior, University, Copyright, 1896.
by A.C. McClurgan Company, in one strange land, and a long way from home, I heard a mighty rumbling, and I couldn't tell where, Negro Melody, it happened a long time ago, it may be 50,000 years in round numbers, or it may have been twice as many, that a strange thing took place in the heart of the great mountains, it was in the middle of the Pliocene epoch, a long, dull time that seemed as if it would never come to an end, there was then on the east side of the great divided deep, rocky basin surrounded by high walls of granite dashed to the base by the wash of many streams, in this basin, we know not how far the records all are burned or buried the crust of the earth was broken, and a great outflow of melted lava surged up from below, this was no ordinary eruption, but a mighty outbreak of the earth's imprisoned forces, the steady stream of lava filled the whole mountain basin and ran out over its sides, covering the country all around so deeply that it has never been seen since. More than 4,000 square miles of land lay buried under melted rock. No one can tell how deep the lava island for no one has ever seen the bottom. Within its bed are deep clefts whose ragged walls descend to the depth of 1,200 feet, and yet give no glimpse of the granite below while at their side are mountains of lava whose crags tower a mile above the bottom of the ravines, at last, after many years or centuries time does not count for much in these tertiary days the flow of melted lava ceased, its surface cooled, leaving a high, an even plain, black and desolate, a hard, cold crust over a fiery and smoldering interior, about the crater lay great ropes and rolls of the slowly hardening lava, looking like knots and tangles of gigantic rectals of some horrible extinct sort. There was neither grass nor trees, nor life of any sort. Nothing could grow in the coarse, black stone. The rivers and brooks had long since vanished in steam. The fishes were all dead, and the birds had flown away. The whole region wore the aspect of the desolation of death. But to let land go to a waste is no part of Mother Nature's plan. So even this far-off corner of her domain was made ready for settlement. In the winter she sifted snow on the cold black plain, and in the summer the snow melted into a multitude of brooks and springs. The brooks gradually wore paths and furrows down the large bed, and the sands which they washed from one place they piled up by.